0: Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies and personalities of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm your host Karen Robinson. This week on the podcast, I am super excited to be able to answer the question that I know all of my listeners are on tenterhooks to find out, which is, is Trump going to win re-election in 2020? I've got Rachel Biddecoffer from the Waysun Center for uh, Public Policy. Um, She is going to share with me the findings from her model, understanding how the race is working. Really, really interesting and fun conversation. So stay tuned for that. It was fabulous. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Rachel. Um, But first, just a really quick news roundup it has been a very busy week in uh primary world um first of all um we had our fundraising numbers for quarter two um drop the big news there um which was perhaps uh quite surprising and, and interesting to note was that the big winner was um south bend mayor pete Buttigieg, who had a fabulous quarter raising the most number um the most money 24.8 million um followed closely by joe biden at 21.5 million um elizabeth warren had a really strong fund quor- ra- fundraising quarter at 19 million bernie sanders just under that raising 18 million and then harris um, um, just below her, um, just below Sanders, um, with $12 million. Um, so be below that, um, nobody raised anything in the, in the tens of millions beyond that, as far as we know so far. There's a few candidates that haven't announced yet. Um, but really interesting to see that fundraising number. I, in particular, will be looking at Kamala Harris's number um, because there have been problems for um, raising money for minority um, African-American candidates in the past. Um, Harris obviously had a really strong strong uh, performance at the debate, which I'm sure propelled um, some of her numbers up, um, but still not up into kind of Elizabeth Warren um, or Buttigieg territory. Um, It will be really interesting to see if she's able to pull in an even stronger number in the next quarter. Um, So I'll be watching that really closely, as well as to see whether Buttigieg is able to maintain that strong fundraising performance, even though um, he's been kind of leveled off in the polls um the other um we've got a whole bunch of announcement news this week um first of all the election has its first official dropout. Eric Swalwell is out of the race. Goodbye, Eric. We hardly knew you. Um, I think Swalwell was hoping that he would be able to have a big moment in the first debate and parlay that into increased support. Um, He did have a moment in the first debate when he challenged Joe Biden, um, suggesting that it was time for him to pass the torch. But nobody really Paid much attention to that. It was very, vastly overshadowed by um, Kamala Harris's also big, you know, also Biden-directed big moment in that same debate. And he may simply have concluded that there's no no path forward to him. But don't worry, we lose one guy. We add one one <laughs> one straight white guy. We add two more. Uh, Tom Steyer is running for president, or looks like he's going to run for president. Steyer is the billionaire who um, is most famous in Democratic circles circles previously for running a pro impeachment campaign. Um, I got to be honest, that to me looks suspiciously like he was using it as an uh, email address gathering campaign or exercise um, ahead of this announcement. He previously said that he was not running for president. And he now says he is. Um, so I guess welcome to the race. Tom Steyer also announced, um, and I think he announced last week, but I missed it because who knew? Um, But also it turns out Joe Sestak um, has announced that he's running for president. Now, if that name doesn't mean anything to you, it's probably because you're younger than I am. I do remember Joe Sestak, um, who uh, is a former admiral. He ran in Pennsylvania against Pat uh, against sorry against um arlen specter in the democratic primary there and um he won so defeated specter who was a party switcher from the republican party defeated him in the primary and then lost in the general election to pat toomey which is why pat toomey the republican is uh currently still the senator for Penn, one of the senators from pennsylvania um he tried to run again lost in the primary the second time around so you know uh, a pennsylvania losing candidate is basically where he's at with that um other news it's been a busy week um amy mcgrath um has announced that she's running for the kentucky senate race um against mitch mcconnell she raised 2.5 million dollars after putting out a very strong announcement video and promptly um kicked off a big debate about whether or not she has any chance of winning in the staunchly republican state of um uh, uh of kentucky um what i think about that so it's Interesting. Um, I think there's two things. First of all, she has a very slim chance of winning, but I think she has a fantastic chance of running a strong campaign and coming close. And I think coming close against the um, current majority leader in the Senate would already be a bit of a, a bit of a win for the Democrats um, at a national level so people will be watching that race very carefully McGrath is a strong candidate um, narrowly losing a um, house race in Kentucky in the last um, primary um, in other news uh, CNN has announced new de- new rules for the next debate which is coming up at the end of this month so just to keep you posted on what those rules are um, they're kind of A lot of similarities from the previous system, but one of the things that I think was interesting is they've noted that there will be no show of hands or one-word down the line questions. You remember that some of the big moments in the last debate um, was people being asked to raise their hand if they support a particular policy. Um, I don't think it's very informing, and there seemed to be a lot of confusion about kind of how the policies, how the questions were phrased. CNN are not going to do that in future. Um, Candidate moderator questions will remain on the screen so people know what they're they're responding to. Candidates attacked by name will be given an opportunity to respond. Um, And candidates who consistently interrupt will have their time reduced when they come to officially answer the questions. Um, So clearly CNN are trying to get some control over the the debate process. So good luck to them for that. Um, And finally... um, House member, Republican House member Justin Amash has, or Amash, I'm not sure how it's pronounced anyway, has decided to leave the Republican Party. He has declared himself an independent um, after taking backlash for calling for the impeachment of Donald Trump. He is the only then Republican to do so. Um, And Basically, I guess we're back to a situation where there are no Republicans calling for um, accountability for the president, Um, but it just says a lot about the currently partisan nature of um, U.S. political life that that would be the case, Um, and that is something we will talk about a great deal more just now as we go into talking to the fantastic Rachel Biddecoffer. So I want to welcome to the podcast uh, Rachel Biddecoffer, who is the Assistant Director of the Wasson Center for Public Policy and a lecturer in government at Christopher Newport University in Virginia. Rachel has produced a a model for understanding political prediction um, in US politics, and she applied it very successfully to the 2018 midterm race. Um, And she's here to tell us um, what we can expect to see in the 2020 presidential race. So welcome, Rachel.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: I am delighted to have you on board, not least because... I don't think I'm giving anything away to say the main thing my listeners really are trying to get out of this podcast is, is Trump going to win re-election or not? Please just tell me the answer. So (laughs) you can do that,
1: right? I can. I I could tell you the midterms months in advance, and I can tell you the results of this presidential election 16 months early. So Fabulous. Put us
0: out of our misery. When we wake up in November 2020, is Trump still going to be president the morning after Election Day?
1: Well, Pres- I mean, President-elect. T- right
0: there, you go. <laughs> January twenty-first, <21st>, twenty twenty-one. <laughs> is Trump still going to be president?
1: No, he will not be president-elect, and it will be the abject terror of the reality of that of him being so that will make sure that he isn't, and I will explain how that works.
0: <laughs> good. So
1: our fear is being put to good purpose. It, it is. Fear is a wonderful, wonderful thing when it comes to elections. <laughs> Tell us more. Um, I know
0: that your your model is not a model based on polling like say Nate Silver's model for 538 and it's different than other models which are more fundamentals based so looking at the economy and and other conditions what is your model based on and um why do you think it's more appropriate for for the political era that we're living in
1: yeah so that's one thing i'm really glad you pointed out because my model is a is not just a little bit different it's a, a drastic departure from those other models it's a complete redo and it, It needed to be, I think, because those fundamentals were so important before uh, our electorate became very polarized. But things like the economy, the economy will hurt you if the economy takes a a downturn, especially an epic downturn, um, it will hurt you. But for a good economy... That's not going to help Donald Trump. I mean, independents just despise him and, and they're not going to reward him for a good economy and overlook all of the other things that he does um, because of polarization. So the reliance on those fundamentals, incumbency and you know, economic stuff have um, weakened over time. And, and there's been some analyses that have backed that up empirically. It's something I, I was theorizing and I've seen some data now that, that actually backs that up. But my argument was, you know, let's take a different approach, a polls-free approach. And, and we know, if we've got all of these groups in America that we know how they're voting with pretty good reliability, then we should be able to take uh, a look at the landscape at the district in in the terms of the midterms or state level in terms of this 2020 election and anticipate, especially with Democrats being terrified, where these big surges from the blue wave are gonna come from, and where they're going to have a massive impact on Democratic Party vote share. And that's what I did in 2018. It allowed me to identify uh, at a time period where the Nate Silvers of the world were having serious debates about whether Democrats could pick up 23 seats to take control of the House and return the Speaker gavel to Nancy Pelosi. I come sweeping out of nowhere and said, no, 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 you guys are all undercutting it big time. It's going to be like 40 seats. (laughs) And And it was 42. (laughs) Yeah, and this is where they're going to be because of all of these, you know, highly co- college-educated, high, big populations of college-educated voters who are realigning to the Democrats, um, and you know, diverse populations. And I, so, my model is is based on two things, really. It's based on partisanship as a number of uh, as a as a as a measure of polarization, and it's me- uh, based on demographics, particularly college education, but also diversity.
0: So you're looking at who's Po- who's present in the different populations, basically, by demographics yeah, and by exactly.
1: party. And, and so wait, by doing that, when I released on July 1st of 2018 last year, I, I came out and I was like, it's going to be a 42 seat pickup, you know, and these are the seats we're going to pick up. And by the way, Orange County, California, where there's five or six uh, districts that have been controlled by Republicans for decades, it's it's literally like where the Reagan revolution started those are all flipping to Democrats. And, you know, I got a lot of pushback. I mean, people were like, you're crazy. You can't make those kinds of, of predictions. You can't make those kinds of guarantees. I said, I can and I will. <laughs> I love so, the confidence. <laughs> and, you know, well, the data doesn't lie, right? And I knew, um, you know, I knew what I was doing because I, I developed the theory and of what I expected to happen I'm in the state of Virginia here in the U.S. and Virginia elects their governor on the um, odd year cycle. So right after 2016, Virginia geared up for a gubernatorial election and all the state legislative uh, election too. And, you know, I do polling here. I'm a political expert in the state everyone else was oh you know this is going to be another close election between the republican and the democrat and the democrats have been in power so the you know the republicans have you know a real chance of taking the governorship and i'm like you guys are all nuts dude this is going to be a giant backlash to, to the election of Di- of of donald trump because He got into office by Democrats being lazy and complacent, got fat and happy over the Obama years, and then started nitpicking things like Wall Street uh, speeches. And they let the Republicans sneak in, you know, and now they're going to be like, oh, man, I better go vote. (laughs) And that's exactly what happened. I mean, the the governor's election here. It was a route. It was a nine point route. And it yeah. also flipped 15 seats in the House of Delegates, a, a feat that no one would have thought possible. And so I went back to quantify, like, where and what could, you know, could I empirically find evidence of this? And I thought it's college education and the partisanship of the districts that matter. And sure enough, my model predict you know picked that up. And so I took that used it to make predictions about the 2018 midterms and those and and it worked quite well so you know I'm I've turned it to 2020
0: okay so that was 2018 and 2017 well done 20, 2020 Instead of looking at congressional races, I mean, we are still looking at congressional races. But in addition to that, for the purposes of the presidential election, we're looking at basically state by state electoral college votes. Obviously, Trump won in 2016 with very, very close votes in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and Michigan. What are you seeing in the demographic and partisanship data for those three states for the next presidential race?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, we'll be talking a little bit later about some media narratives, and media narratives, um, the more I get into political analysis, the more I find that media narratives are wrong. One of the more wrong media narratives that are prevailing is how Trump won the Midwest, right? It's described in the media as this triumph of populism and, you know, this movement of voters over to Trump because he ran, you know, because Hillary was a terrible candidate and he ran on this economic populist message and he moved all these white working class voters into his camp and these Obama-Trump voters, you know, Swept him into victory. Well, in Ohio, that that empirically you can see evidence for that story. But outside of Ohio, that's not what happened I mean, That's just literally not what the data says happened. What happened instead was that liberal progressives were disenchanted with Clinton. And so they showed up and and the ones that did the ones that showed up cast ballot protest ballots um, circa 2000 in Florida. And they voted for Bernie Sanders as a write-in or they voted for Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, or they voted for Gary Johnson because he wanted to legalize pot and mostly he just wasn't Hillary. A lot of these individuals were men uh, in male independence, uh, young millennial male independents. And, um, you know, in Wisconsin, like the normal in the polarized era since like the 2000 election, the normal rate of protest ballot balloting is about one and a half percent of the electorate. Mm -hmm. In Wisconsin, it was six over six percent of the ballots cast in, in 2016. And that's an election that came down to less than 1% between Clinton and Trump. And, uh, of course, you had some uh, never-Trump Republicans doing the same thing on the other side. They didn't vote for Trump, but uh, the data suggests in my book that the preponderance of these people probably would have cast ballots for Hillary Clinton. And on top of that, you had voter suppression, but also... Uh, self-suppression, you know, from African Americans scaling back their participation because they wasn't a black uh, president anymore. So they weren't as motivated to vote. The Clinton team failed to understand the role of base turnout that we're going to talk about hopefully in the second half of this interview. Mm -hmm. Um, And they didn't pick a running mate to help kind of uh, Bring in those disaffected progressives. Instead, they picked a moderate that they hoped would appeal foolishly to independents and, and moderate Republicans, which of course totally failed. So not only did it not do that, it also did not bring in these disaffected um, um, progressives. And so those those things came together, and, and it and made made Donald Trump basically thread a very narrow needle to win the. Win the Midwest, and I say in the forecast that it probably can't be done again. Now that Democrats are freaked out,
0: you talked about the relatively low number of uh, disaffected Republicans who switched party. That's actually an important part of of your thinking around this, isn't it? You talk a lot about negative partisanship and the the kind of very very small number of people who actually switch party. What what is that? Why is that the case, and why does that seem to be increasingly the case in U.S. politics?
1: Oh, yeah. Number one, I mean, partisans don't switch parties. I mean, there might be some, and I hang out with these guys, <laughs> some highly intellectual DC think tank, you know, people like Tom Nichols who have left the GOP over this. But by and large, your rank and file Republican voter has not left the Republican Party over Trump. Okay. Uh, the people that are moving are what we call pure independents. They're generally low-interest uh, voters. They don't follow politics a lot. They don't have a lot of ideological passion. That's why they're independents. And, you know, they swing back and forth. Under my model, they swing back and forth basically against the party in power. So they swing against the Clint- against Clinton because she was a Democrat and towards mm-hmm. Trump because he was change. These guys are, are the most imagistically, um, you know, I guess, sensitive type voters, like, uh, oh, I'm going to bring you change. Oh, good. I like change because I've had this and it sucks and I want change. Right? <laughs> uh, and uh, my expectation is that in 2020, they'll swing back towards the Democrats because now they've had four years of Trump and they don't like that. It's not doing anything for them. It never does anything for them. Right? So, um, you know, we, we call these guys, I mean, the way the media talks about them as is is as if they are party switchers. But they're not. And people who are partisan do not switch because they have these passions. And, you know, we have become so stridently tribal about the things that we care about. So ultimately, you know, a lot of these moderate Republicans, even today, who are like, oh, you know, maybe I won't vote for Trump again well they were saying the same things you know at this point in the republican primary in 2016 but come election day there's no evidence in the in the exit poll data or any of the polling i've analyzed that these people ended up casting votes for democrats they ultimately got treated with campaign literature that reminded them why they're republicans they were it reminded them why it mattered to have a republican president so they could control the court things like that and ultimately. They cast those votes for Trump, even if they felt uncomfortable with him as a person.
0: Right. So, and as I understand it from all the political science I've looked at, the number of true independents, such as the ones you're talking about, the genuine people who are not party switchers, but 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 just independent minded people who switch back and forth, they're a very small part of the electorate, even a That's, small part of the people who describe themselves as independents. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's, it's about 10 to 12% of the right. electorate. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, yeah. then, you know, it's enough to make a difference, but it's not yeah. a, it's not a huge block.
1: Right, right. And, and then throughout the entire like length of the polarized era in any given election, somewhere between 10 and 5 percent of the other party's voters will vote for the other party's candidate. And that's like the that's like the norm, like mm-hmm. uh, amount. So like we always have about 10 percent of Democrats vote for the Republican candidate in a Senate race. And you always have about 10% of Republicans vote for a uh, Democrat in a, in a Senate race, right? So when I'm looking at data, I'm, I need to see numbers above 10, like, you know, ideally significantly above 10. But it's so rare to see anything above 10 that Arizona in 2018, uh, S- Senema there pulled about 12% of the Republican vote. So, and that's only two points above 10, but it's actually notable. You know what right. I mean? Because So such- actual Republican yeah. partisans. she won a higher proportion. She won two points higher than normal. And that is such a, that's such a, it's, it's such a standard amount that a two point deviation mean is meaningful. I can, I, I know it means something. That's really
0: interesting, considering that the candidate she was running against, McSally, is running again for, uh, the, for the next Arizona Senate race.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually, I don't have data for this right now. I'm, I'm trying to find some way to quantify it. Um, but unfortunately, I, I need survey data that also asks about John McCain, right? Mm-hmm. My expectation is that that two-point bump are Republicans that were really, really, really big fans of John McCain. Mm-hmm. And hold a grudge against Trump and the Republican Party for what they've done to McCain.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Slight deviation into Arizona there, but but an important state for us as well. Um, okay. So we've talked a lot about the landscape. Now, we are Democrats on this podcast trying to choose a candidate. What does your model tell us about what would be the best winning strategy for us in terms of which candidate to select and then also how to run that candidate, so to speak?
1: Okay. Yeah. So the candidate selection part is not that important, but part B is extremely important. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I say in the release, you know, it, uh, you know, I'm I'm releasing this without polls and poll aggravators and even a candidate, and and I will tell you that it the candidate probably doesn't even matter that much. You know, maybe if it's a disruptor like Bernie Sanders it won't be Bernie Sanders. And I'm sure many people listening to this podcast will now be like, Oh, I hate that lady. But, I'm, happy to, <laughs> I'm happy to explain why that is. Um, but anyway, podcast uh, listeners might be interested in my earlier
0: episode on my six concerns about a Sanders candidacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, my, my, um, uh, my comment there has nothing to do with concerns about his candidacy, more just the reality of, of a brand that has peaked and has peaked out and, and yeah. has a competing brand that is on its way up, AKA Warren. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway, but yeah, so it really, what the nominee doesn't necessarily matter. Uh, it's certainly where the nominee matters is the strategy that they implement, because I'm getting ready to release a second, like, subsequent analysis to my forecast that dives into some voter file data here in the U.S., and, and, it, and it, you know, what I wanted to do with the data is substantiate the, the important role that turnout surges played in in the Democrats' House gains, because the way that the media frames it is, oh, you know, moderate Republicans joined up with Democrats to flip the House and give Democrats this advantage, and therefore Democrats must not become too liberal because if they do, they're going to isolate all these moderate Republicans who helped them flip the House. Well, okay, there's no evidence of that in the data, actually. So, no. Literally
0: no evidence of it. No
1: evidence. Like, literally that did not happen. Okay. And, you know, we've had like 15, like, you know, op eds on that topic. The entire Morning Joe panel is convinced it's true. It's one of the most. Like deeply held beliefs in American political analysis. But Rachel, and if you can't trust the Morning truth. Joe panel, who can you trust? <laughs> right? So, you know, I feel a little <laughs> bit compelled to get this information out there because it's not true. Like in the data, there is no mo- In fact, here's the sad, sad, sad truth. Republicans are loving this. They love this shit. They turned out also in big numbers in 2018. Now, in a lot of these districts, the Democratic surge was enough to equalize the turnout with Republicans. And then the independent, it's not the independents, the same independents that voted before swinging over. It's new independents. So probably left-leaning independents that are motivated to the polls by the same mechanisms that Democrats were motivated. And of course, these new left-leaning independents were voting for the Democratic candidates, just like the Democratic turnout surge voters were doing, okay? And their combined force was able to topple the Republican voters who also surged their turnout. But in many districts, especially the ones that that ran blue dog moderates, the Democratic surge when you control for the size of the potential surge was smaller proportionally than in districts that just ran Democrats as Democrats, right? So what that means is, you uh, and, and, to, and, and before I go into that, so not only was the surge of Democratic base voters smaller in those districts, the size of the Republican surge was the same size as it was in other districts. So you paid a price in terms of Democratic-based turnout, but you also saw a big backlash of Republican-based voter turnout. And so there's basically no benefit because the benefit is I, you know, there's two, there's two benefits supposedly with this, this system. You don't, you know, you don't isolate independent voters well. The analysis says, look, it's different independents surging their turnout. These independents are probably motivated by the same liberal platform that democrat democratic voters are motivated by and two by running as a blue dog in these redder districts you don't motivate republicans to come out against you right well the data shows republicans showed up in droves in these districts
0: okay (laughs) i mean i think i think what you're saying if i'm understanding you correctly is whether or not you run as a hard democrat republicans will treat you like one in other words absolutely there's no advantage to not being true 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 blue
1: and actually, there's a disadvantage because you suppress your base's turnout compared mm-hmm. to other people who ran as Democrats. And I'm not saying as progressives, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez level Democrats. I'm just talking about as a Democrat rather than, you know, hey, I'm a blue dog. I'm a, you know, I'm not like those re- the rest of those Democrats. I'm, a, you know, basically a blue, cra- a, a conservative Democrat running. Yeah. So
0: you're not talking about policy position. You're talking about messaging.
1: Oh, both, you know. I mean blue dogs do both. It's a yeah. tone and temperament thing and it's a policy thing, right? Okay. Yeah. And and I, I actually wouldn't say that they need much adjustment on the on the policy thing. You know, I mean, most of them are still like today's blue dog is not yesterday's blue dog. The party has moved and the public has moved a lot. So today's blue dog Democrat ran on gun control. That would not have happened 10 years ago. Right. Okay. So policy-wise, they're okay. But messaging tone and targeting strategy is what I'm talking about. They focus their campaign strategies on the wrong voters and Mm -hmm. think that they can persuade moderate Republicans to come over and vote for them.
0: And it ain't going to happen.
1: It ain't going to happen. And in, and in, in doing so... By devoting the resources in that direction, they starve the other element of their campaign, that element that could help them, you know, in a tight race. So in 2020 and 2018, it won't matter because the Democratic enthusiasm is just naturally there, but it's going to wipe them all out in 2022.
0: So I have, I have two questions about democratic enthusiasm. Um, so I'll come back to the second one in a minute. But my first one is, you said the enthusiasm is definitely there. In 2018, obviously, it was. What I want to know is, how will we know if our turnout, enthe- turnout enthusiasm remains at the same level or if it's declining compared to 2018? What what measures should we be looking at to understand
1: yeah, that? I'm really glad that you asked that question. <laughs> I have like, a super awesome, easy answer that nobody else in any place you know not even on 538 could they give you this so you want it go okay all you need to look at is the turnout in the primaries that's what's going to tell us a lot primary turnout okay Yeah. yeah if i see primary turnout that doesn't get close to 2008 i mean what we really ought to see as a country right is primary turnout that exceeds 2008 because you know, when we think about 2008, yeah, we had the Iraq war going on. We had major Bush backlash. We had an economy that was starting to teeter on the edge. I mean, shit was a little bit unsettled, okay? But it was not like this, okay? <laughs> We're facing, like, major institutional destruction. Um, but the turnout in 2008 was through the roof. And it's a sad feature of today that I that I can't just say, hey, turnout is going to be higher than 2008. Mm -hmm. And if I could say that, if I could say that turnout was going to be higher than 2008, then I could also tell you, hey, the Senate is going to flip. The Senate's absolutely going to flip. Okay, Mm -hmm. But because I don't get that sense, and I think that's driven in part by Nancy Pelosi's shitty strategy um, of how she's navigating Trump uh, and navigating the base of the Democratic Party, Um, I, I think instead we're probably what what we need to see for my model to hold is turnout that gets somewhere around 2008, Okay, It doesn't have to beat it and it's doesn't even have to meet it, but it's gotta be above 2016. And if it's Mm -hmm. at the same level of 2016. Like that, you know, I I don't foresee a lot of needs to redo my model, but that's going to probably make me toss a couple of those states back into, into toss up
0: okay so that's interesting so 2008 is our kind of benchmark we're looking to do better than that in terms of participation in the primary which makes sense to me also because there's a really strong evidence that suggests people who participate in the primary are more likely than uh, to then vote in the general election as well so increasing primary participation has has get out the vote implications anyway um 2008 was led by a female candidate and you know on the democratic side of one female candidate and one african-american candidate kind of slugging it out of that primary it was very exciting. So I want to come back to your statement about candidate selection, um, because you said it doesn't make a difference who you choose. But I'm just curious if you think, given a lot of what you're talking about is a strategy that's led by base enthusiasm and exciting um, constituencies, would there be electoral advantages to us in preferring perhaps a female or a minority candidate?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like if I was to assume a different doctor title and go into the type that write prescriptions, (laughs) I would tell you guys need to do. You need to have Harris somewhere on that ticket. (laughs) okay? Um, you need to have Kamala uh, on that ticket, either as the as the nominee or as the Veep, because she is a female woman of color and she will drive up turnout of female women of color all across the country i mean that she's absolutely the rest of the ticket to me is adjustable or negotiable or negligible honestly but putting harris on that ticket is somewhere in some capacity either at the top or the bottom absolutely critical for democrats if they want to kind of uh mitigate risk
0: Mm -hmm. and is there any candidate attributes that we should be avoiding
1: well i mean you know here's the thing with biden biden's boring okay but the electorate goes through these things where it wants one thing and then it wants the next so last time it wanted a disruptor uh and chaos and now it's had a lot of disruption and chaos and it's tired of that right and one of the i mean there's number one joe biden's endurance in the polls right now is largely a product of name recognition when you look at the other candidates even harris after that debate, still in the 20s on I've never heard of this lady among potential Democratic primary voters. OK, yep. um, so, you know, I'm going to be putting out a piece on that. If people want to watch my Twitter, it's going to be very informative. But anyway, um, you know, here's my worry with Biden. Biden's going to be surrounded by the James Carvills of the Democratic Party. And I and and then he had the spat with Harris. Right. Yeah. And I worry, and and those are the people who are gonna tell him, Joe, 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 the secret to winning is getting these moderate Republicans to vote for you. <laughs> and so that, like, that, that I mean that seems to be his strategy, right? He's well, he, like the worst thing that they could possibly do, right? And and like that's the thing the entire Beltway media is telling them is the recipe to win. And as I just told you, the data doesn't lie, the data says, don't do that. <laughs> So, so basically,
0: <laughs> Joe Biden could win, but not with that strategy.
1: Yeah, well, it would not be a risk mitigation strategy. Right, he, he can win. He can if win anyway. Harris on the ticket. If he puts Stacey Abrams on the ticket, if he puts you know a woman, you know maybe Warren. But he's got it. He can't go with a Tim Kaine. God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So
0: basically, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up as. We are in a good position. You, you you think that Democrats are likely to win the next election, almost no matter who we nominate. But we can be smart about it and maximize our advantage by doing the things that will make our voters more likely to vote than not.
1: Exactly. And you know what? Also, I mean, you need the Senate seats, right? Yeah, absolutely. Need those Senate seats if you want to do anything with the power yeah
0: so i guess i guess the only final question and the only like nagging anxiety that i have as well you alluded to this earlier is um is voter suppression um and obviously you talked about the fact in wisconsin and michigan and pennsylvania that our base vote um was was down in 2016 and you talked about that as perhaps you know self-suppression but some of it was actual suppression
1: oh yes definitely yes. um
0: and you know that unlike unlike enthusiasm gap is not something that's going to be better in 2020 than it was in, in 2016. In fact, it, it might be worse. In some to- places,
1: yes, definitely. Yeah. So
0: I guess it's just to what extent do we need to factor that in?
1: We absolutely need to factor that in. And you've got to factor in the propaganda that worked really well for the Russians. It's going to be picked up by the GOP and used, um, you know, especially the suppression stuff and the progressives are going to be targeted uh, extensively, the Bernie people. So if you're a Bernie Sanders fan please learn to love Elizabeth Warren and um, in the short term. And then in the long term, learn to just love not living in Donald Trump's America <laughs> <laughs> because you're going to get targeted by, you know, these uh, GOP bots, not just the Russians this time. Yeah. And that stuff worked out really great. I mean, the thing with the GOP that I really admire because I'm a, I'm a person that can admire evil things is their, their campaign operation is just an absolute it's just first rate. I mean, they know how to make people vote and they are going to turn out their voters top notch here in Virginia in 2019 and also in 2020. So, um, you know, and they, they, they are willing to play the game to win. Whereas Democrats have not yet adapted to the new reality that we live in. So,
0: well, that's another really important point, isn't it? I mean, I remember 2008, I worked on the Obama campaign and I remember how much they invested in grassroots activation, what we call field operations, how many offices they opened? how many times they were hitting the pavement. And we've got to work twice as hard to get out the same number of votes because our voters are lower proclivity voters. Yeah. Um, so there is, I mean, we tend to talk, we tend to talk about the election in terms of like the media war or the advertising war, but actually the ground game is where these things are won and lost. Um, oh my gosh. Yes. And here,
1: the thing like right now in your so right now in your average swing district swing state like this arizona race right they're going to invest heavily in the ground game but they're going to invest most of it into these persuasion voters right yeah and what my data is telling them would be telling them if they could look at my analysis is you know what they need is a hydrogen bomb level investment in latino turnout mm-hmm. because if they were to do that like latino the latino variable in my model does not reach significance it does so what that means is it doesn't have a significant effect on the two-party vote share okay and it should because it's so slanted in favor of democrats But the reason why is that they don't turn out that component of the vote enough, and it's because they've been nothing but like, um, you know, side investment level investment into it. Florida, Texas, Arizona, um, even in places like Georgia, that's the heart of the democratic pathway to victory is finding those democratic voters and investing on that base level turnout. And instead, they're convinced that they can win this heart and mind argument where my data just says look you are turning out different independents those are the people that are voting for you not the old ones okay? yeah. <laughs> number one and number two these moderate Republicans they they like what's happening okay because they're not leaving if they were leaving the Republican party then the margins in these house races would have been 60 40. OK, and they're not. They're 53, 40, you know, 40, you know, <laughs> whatever. I can't do math in my head, <laughs> you know, and so you can't have a huge Democratic turnout surge, a huge independent turnout surge that absolutely broke against the GOP and a huge Republican turnout surge and have all three of those variables breaking against the Republicans. Right. So obviously that Republican turnout surge is going in favor of the Republicans. So they like what they're getting and you're yeah. not going to convince them to vote against Trump. They're loving it. Yeah.
0: And we're not. So, you know, let's, let's make not loving it our linchpin. <laughs> that, that that will be the key. <laughs> not loving it.
1: Not loving it. There you go.
0: <laughs> Great. Rachel, thank you for that. Um, do you want to stick around a few minutes and we'll play the gut check game?
1: I, I will not leave without getting to play.
0: Fabulous. <laughs> Great. Um, so for new podcast listeners, I have in front of me, my trusty Red Sox baseball cap into which I have placed slips of paper containing things. Um, typically this is things overheard on the campaign trail this week. I've decided to put in place some media narratives that I've heard expressed in one form or another. So these are not direct quotes. They're just things that keep coming through, um, that I've crystallized. And I'm going to pull one out of the hat and ask Rachel, uh, and myself to react to them. Um, So the first one, oh, this is a really good one that just touches on what we were just talking about. Um, Media narrative. We need a candidate who can attract moderates who are disenchanted with Trump.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. That's a funny one, right? Um, Yeah, what you need is a campaign that can motivate Democrats to polls and left-leaning independents, and you need somebody who's going to excite them. And uh, give them a reason to show up on election day. Yeah.
0: Here's another one. This is a really interesting one. We need a candidate who can match Trump's populism.
1: Actually, you probably do need a candidate that has a pretty strong, robust economic populist message that can sell well in the Midwest. I don't see how that could hurt.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of candidates could potentially do that.
1: Yeah. And, and you know what? It's populism, but not like, you know trade war populism let me be clear yeah Yeah. we want we want capitalism you know framed i think you know warren does a decent job when she's attacking capitalism to still frame it capitalism as a positive as a net positive so you know i think i think You know, there's a lot of American families that are are pissed off at the status quo. Uh, There's a New York Times article that came out this week, you know, documenting the plights of the American middle class in America's major cities, you know, you make huge amounts of money and have to worry about sending their kids to college, and many of them will never retire, right? (laughs) It's not just a message that resonates with people earning uh, under 50K coming from blue-collar households. people understand that the economic system isn't working for them so you know you don't need to go full you know economic populist but i think you do need to have a message that is talking yeah. about some change to the economy yeah
0: yeah i tend to agree with that and i think i think especially when we look to the midwest which is where i think a lot yes. of the attention is focused people yeah. forget there is a real prairie populism strain to american popular american politics which has been kind of Around for a long time and is quite different than Trumpian populism, um, but is a really powerful electoral force in a lot of those places that can be maybe activated again if we start talking in those terms.
1: Yeah, and to tell you the truth, I mean, I mean, that's a pretty common feature of American presidential politics in the Midwest. It's always been that I think prairie populism is a pretty good way to put it. So,
0: yeah. Okay, I've got another one here, um, which is one that I hear all the time, and I'm curious if you have the same cringe reaction that I do to it. Trump proved that none of the rules of politics are true anymore.
1: Uh, no, uh, I wrote a book about that. I mean, Trump, uh, here's the thing with Trump, if, as long as you are a celebrity, all right, uh, and as long as you are catering to the audience on the right, you can get away with a lot of stuff. Yeah but if you um I, I go through all the other people who've tried or have done many other things to which the rules of gravity still apply take for instance poor labor secretary acosta who just announced his resignation uh after a painful week in did he did,
0: did that literally just happen i was probably working happened. on the podcast
1: literally just now <laughs> Bye-bye, uh, bye, Secretary bye Acosta. Acosta. Bye, <laughs> bye. I don't know why people do that painful week where they try to resist gravity, but uh, <laughs> for most people, in most cases, there is still such a thing as political gravity. Well, hasta la vista. Um, so yeah, I
0: agree. I think the normal rules of politics are rules because they rules. Um, but I think what's interesting is Trump, not as a kind of deviation from the rule, but almost Trump as as a culmination of, of what we've seen as a political trend especially on the republican side for i would say 30 years or so right. but what he's done is he's stripped off the kind of nice packaging around it He's oh, just absolutely doing more bluntly what republicans are doing anyway and well, people yes. think that's something new but it's not it's the it's same strategy that. it's just less nice
1: It's actually the realization. So like I have a book in progress um, that looks at what happened on to Republicans. Okay. And it's, and, and I was just marveling about their campaign strategy and it is true. It's, it is brilliant, but it is also a product of psychological warfare. Okay, and it's been waged on on Republican identifiers, Republican voters for 30 years. And it has escalated decade after decade to become more and more extreme. And after 2010, it became like ludicrous extreme, probably because the Internet came with all the conspiracy stuff. And they literally drove their base batshit crazy. And Trump is. The Frankenstein that arose out of that batshit crazy environment. And, you know, it's a testament to the negative externalities that can come when you push people's psychological well being to the limits.
0: I think the Frankenstein analogy is apt because I really do feel like this keeps happening, that Republicans, they create these monsters and then they're surprised when the monsters have a voice and a mind of their own and they expect to be able to go out and ravage the countryside. They're like, no, no, we, we,
1: we, we didn't mean that. No doubt. And in this case, like they have lost complete control of their own party. Yeah. I mean, complete control. They never Trump. That's what the never Trump movement is. It's a group. I mean, I I work with these guys. I mean, it's a group of very, you know, people who sit around going, oh, my God, like, what have we done? <laughs> and, and they're, you know, they are sincerely regretful and um, remarkably self-effacing um, about it, but also completely aware that this is a fire that they cannot, they cannot contain. Mm. Yeah. Okay.
0: So the, the last media narrative, and this is one I've heard a lot, especially lately since, since the primary debate, I would say the crowded primary is a weakness for Democrats as it means it will divide the party and reduce turnout against Trump in the general.
1: No, not at all. I mean, after what happened in 2016, I mean, this was going to be the logical answer. You're going to have this giant primary. You're going to have all these people run. I wrote an article for Vox about why all these people are running, even though they have no chance of actually winning the presidency. And they um, like keep adding. We've just added Joe Sestak, Tom Steyer. Okay. I'm like, guys, these guys we're are done. so bad, right. And and the incentive is that you know people think you're. You get invited to all the cool clubs and all the cool parties and the media is talking about you. I mean, there's a lot of other incentives, even if you never have a chance of actually being the nominee. So there's a lot of reasons why. And and it's low cost. And in today's environment, you just need a computer to run for president, right? I mean, you don't even have to leave your house. So you don't really need a lot of money to do it. Uh, um, But anyway, yeah, uh, I... The, you know, there's no super delegates this time. Most people are unaware, but the DNC eliminated the super delegates. That's been a feature of the presidential nomination system for for years and years and years. And it will not be a feature when we start delegate counting. Yeah. Once not, in, not in round one, anyway.
0: They it, might become a factor in subsequent rounds of voting, but yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's hope not, because that's where. <laughs> let's not get there. That could be a total shit show. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I mean, so far, I don't see. This coming out to a point where we're going to have a contested convention, right? Uh, but we we could still potentially end up there. That's a topic for a whole different podcast. I think it's interesting. I mean, when I when I think about my reaction to that,
0: I I am mostly pretty sanguine about it because I think. Um, this first of all, this is normal. Like, right? We have a primary. People debate a month between the party before they debate between the general. That's just how this system works. So, you know, it seems silly to get too fired up and about oh, the horrors of it. And people aren't, you know, the general population hasn't switched on yet. Um, you know.
1: So yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. Only like twenty percent. I mean, we are freaks. Like, if you're listening to this podcast, congratulations, you're in the one (laughs) percent. Oh not the economic We are a Bunch but, of weirdos, right? You are in the um, intellectual one percent, so <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> but I guess I guess the thing that does worry me
0: is, and you alluded to it earlier, is and uh, is the way that our enemies, both domestically and foreign, right? So both yep. Trump and Russia. have become very good at identifying points of division um, between us as a nation and as a party and using those to basically drive a drive a stake through it. So in 2016, you know, famously, the, the Russians were funding Black Lives Matter Facebook pages because they were trying to kind of foster any divisions. Bernie Sanders in 2016, um, a lot of his supporters did not wind up voting for Hillary Clinton. And that was a problem for us, which is one of the reasons I'm sort of not sorry to see Sanders' numbers have been going down lately, because I'm hoping that we won't have that kind of refusenic portion within our own progressive left of the party next time around. I'm hoping that we will all be sensible enough to understand the stakes now at last. Um, but, you know, th- that's the only part that worries me, is if there will be breakaway factions that decide to throw sanity to the wind. Because, you know, we got nuts in our party, too. There are loopy people.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's always a risk. And I think there, I mean, you can see the results in Arizona, 2% in that tight Senate race of people, of progressives voted for the Green Party nominee yeah. in that tight Senate race. Almost cost the Democrats an opportunity to pick up a, te- a Senate seat there.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. So my parting thought, guys, don't do that. Stay with us. Um, Rachel, thank you so much. That's been really a pleasure. I hope we can get you on again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. It was fun. Lovely. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's it. As always, you can find me on Twitter at KarenJR, that's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R on Twitter. If you are an American voter who has not yet requested your absentee ballot or registered to vote for this year's election, um, you can do so by going to vote.org if you're an American back in the USA, or if you're an American abroad like myself, you can go to votefromabroad.org. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week. Remember, new episodes every Friday. Talk to you soon.